0: Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Biden administration uh, sending more weapons to Ukraine. Also going to be discussing how the U.S. is threatening a uh, legal designation of genocide against Ethiopia and Eritrea and a whole lot more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: On this day in the struggle in 1863, Harriet Tubman Delivered nearly 800 people from enslavement. BlackPass.com details what is known as the raid at Combahee Ferry that Tubman led, where on the night of June 2nd, three federal gunboats set sail from Beaufort, South Carolina, up the Combahee River. Tubman had gained vital information about the location of rebel torpedoes that were planted along the river, and she, river, and she got that information from people who traded information for their freedom. Because of this information, Tubman was able to steer the Union ships away from any danger, and she led the ships to specific spots along the shore where fugitives from slavery were hiding and waiting to be rescued. That's right. Harriet Tubman helped nearly 800 formerly enslaved people escape their bondage in the middle of the Civil War. Oh, but that's not all, because while she was at it, she and the All-African-American 2nd Regiment of South Carolina destroyed millions of dollars worth of Confederate supplies in the first armed raid planned and led by a woman, a black woman, against Confederate forces, also destroying supply depot and plantations along the Combahee River. An article on the front page of the July 10th edition of the Commonwealth, a Boston newspaper uh, that was published in 1863, described the raid in. Glorious detail. It says during the night of June 2nd, 1863, Harriet and Colonel Montgomery, with a party of about 150 Negro troops and three gunboats, started up the Combahee River. Pickets located at stations near the mouth of the stream spotted the oncoming boats and dispatched word to the Confederate commander, Major Emanuel, located deeper inland at Green Pond. Every plantation on both sides of the river were. The Union soldiers in small detachments raced from one plantation to another, creating a general devastation of the zone. In the Combahee Ferry region, the Blake, Lowndes, Middleton, and Hayward plantations were in ruins. The Negroes fled to the gunboats and the slave masters skedaddled inland. The bridge at Combahee Ferry was burned, but not too badly. As the gunboats passed up the river, the Negroes left their work and took to the woods, for at first they were frightened. They came out to peer like startled deer, but scuttled away like the wind at the sound of the steam whistle. The word was passed along that these were, quote, Lincoln's gunboats come to set them free, end quote, I'm going to say they're Harriet Tubman's gunboats, but that's what I think. From that moment on, the overseers used their whips in vain, for they failed to drive the slaves back to the quarters. They turned and ran for the gunboats. They came down every road, across every field, dressed just as they were when they left their work in their cabins. There were women with children clinging around their necks, hanging on to their dresses, or running behind, but all rushed at full speed for... Harriet Tubman's gunboats, hundreds crowded the banks with their hands extended toward their deliverers, and most of them were taken aboard the gunboats to be carried to Beaufort. In fact, there's only one account of anyone being successfully deterred from boarding those gunboats, a woman who fled her bondage but was shot to death by the overseers. I think the most delicious part of this important history is that over 100 men who were picked up on those gunboats were encouraged to to join the Union forces. And they, in turn, participated in destroying several influential South Carolina estates plantations owned by leading secessionists. So many of the Union soldiers were former slaves who saw the burning and pillaging of these plantations as an opportunity to enact revenge on the master class. Harriet Tubman and the hundreds of black people who fled their bondage broke the stronghold of the Confederate economy and secessionist power in South Carolina as the plantations owned by the major secessionist families, Hayward, Middleton, and Louds, were among those that were destroyed. These freedom fighters also dealt a severe blow to the Confederate psyche. And can you imagine how enraged and bereft they were to realize that they had been bested, beaten by a black woman, black Union troops, and all those black former slaves? That's why they're still mad, y'all, and swear that the South will rise again. Black freedom fighters saved this nation from destroying itself once. But this nation has never risen to the standards set by them and their sacrifice, barely acknowledging their sacrifice, if at all, and honestly has never reconciled its past and the violence and hatred that spawned the Civil War, the institution of slavery that it was fought over, and the slaughter of the indigenous peoples that preceded even that. So now this still fractured nation is facing the consequences of not truly reconciling its violent and bloody and hateful past in this current violent and bloody epidemic of mass shootings. Is once again confronted with the stark realities of the nature of policing and its ineffectiveness to actually protect and serve people, but to uphold unjust laws, you know, just like slave patrols did protecting property and violating people's human rights while in the midst of a baby formula shortage caused by a capitalist monopolization of the baby formula market and the ability of those entities to ignore basic safety regulations to deliver safe food to babies as inflation pushes the cost of food up and food banks can't afford to fill their shelves to help the poor, but also increasingly more of the working and so-called middle class in this country, all While the Biden administration continues to throw obscene amounts of money and weapons at their proxy war in Ukraine, money that his administration continues to claim they just don't have for housing, health care, education and, you know, to feed people. Once again, this nation is at war with itself. And it's still very much a war of the master class against the working class and poor. But I don't think you're going to get a Harriet Tubman figure to turn the tide of this war this time. This time, we would all better be Harriet Tubman and the 2nd Regiment of South Carolina and all those who fled their plantations. We need to be all of them and turn around and take down the master class we're fighting against. Follow LukeMan Nation on Patreon.com/slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington DC. I'm your host Sean Blackman here with Jackie LukeMan, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by journalist and author Daniel Lazare. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And, Daniel, here recently, we've seen U.S. President Joe Biden uh, announced that they will be uh, delivering new advanced weapons uh, to Ukraine, uh, including a high-mobility artillery rocket system, also known as uh, HIMARS, H-I-M-I-R-S. And this would actually give Ukraine the ability to strike Russian targets uh, roughly 50 miles away. I mean, these are powerful uh, satellite-guided missiles. And Biden, uh, who also recently uh, visited a Lockhart Martin facility in Alabama, explained his thinking on this uh, in The New York Times on Tuesday, where he said, quote, we will continue providing Ukraine with advanced weaponry, including Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, powerful artillery and precision rocket systems, radars, unmanned aerial vehicles, Mi-17 helicopters, and ammunition. Now, uh, of course, you know, uh, uh, Russia has been uh, pretty critical of uh, the U.S. in its providing of uh, uh, weapons and resources to Ukraine. And uh, many uh, have seen this uh, ongoing support as uh, a kind of shot across the bow, if you will, at Russia that could very well signal an escalation of tensions between Russia and U.S. And Biden addressed this as well, uh, saying, "Quote: We do not seek a war between NATO and Russia. As much as I disagree with Mr. Putin and find his actions an outrage, the United States will not try to bring about his ouster in Moscow. So long as the United States, uh, as our allies, are not attacked, we will not be directly engaged in this conflict either by sending American troops to fight in Ukraine." or by attacking Russian forces. Now, I got to say, it's interesting that he says that the U.S. doesn't want to bring about Putin's ouster, because just in late March, um, uh, Putin—I mean, uh, uh, Biden gave a speech in Warsaw, Poland, where he was speaking of Putin and literally said, quote, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. But I mean, be that as it may, Daniel, I'm definitely wondering sort of how you're considering uh, uh, not only the ongoing delivery of weapons from the U.S. to Ukraine, but what it could mean that uh, this advanced weaponry
2: is is making its way there now yeah yeah I mean, I mean i think we're entering the most dangerous part of the war uh and the reason is that the russians are winning uh their their artillery offensive in the donbass is having a devastating effect um uh the, uh the the ukrainians are reeling under the impact uh there are growing reports of mutinies by ukrainian troops um who uh who you know? Who don't you know? Don't see why they have to carry out senseless orders that you know, that essentially will send them to to their grave. Um, so the war is uh, the war is going very badly for the U.S. Um, and, and this is what's so dangerous because um, because Biden assumed at the very start that a combination of economic um, sanctions and uh, and weapon shipments would be enough to. To you know, to push the Russians back, to uh, to quote liberate those territories that Russia had seized, and allow uh, the the Kiev government to uh, to prevail. But now this strategy is failing. So the question is, what does the U.S. do next? Does it up the ante? Does it deliver ever more powerful weapons? Um, is will there be a a, a essentially um, a an unstoppable movement to intervene militarily. Uh, no one knows, but the 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 worse the war goes for the for the U.S. and its allies, the greater those those temptations will be. Um, so I think it's a, I think it we're heading into a really perilous stage in this whole conflict.
1: Yeah, particularly since this particular rocket system, this HIMARS system, is designed to strike targets from 50 miles away. This sounds to me like not just uh, being able to use this rocket system against uh, Russian targets in Ukraine, but it sounds to me as if this could potentially be used to strike targets in Russia, from Ukraine, and I'm wondering if you are seeing that particular threat uh, as as an issue with this uh, new delivery of weapons system as well.
2: Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, it's really it's it's very dangerous. It's an, it's an escalation, and allows the Ukraine to bring the war to Russia, um, and uh, you know, and you know, and and obviously. Obviously, that's what the Ukraine wants to do. I mean, it obviously wants to take revenge for the Russian invasion. It wants to. Uh, it wants to punish Putin. It wants to want to go on the offensive, um, but whether or not that's understandable, the results are all too predictable. Uh, the more the war widens, the, the more the war widens. The more the war will widen. And the more the West will be drawn in. And, and, and believe me, the last thing you want is a broader Ukrainian war, because that, that essentially will, uh, will mean a, a second 1914, at best, by the way. <laughs> at worst, it could mean a thermonuclear exchange. But uh, it's just getting, it's getting very dangerous. And I think people should realize uh, you know, you know, what the risks are here. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that
0: goes to really the the first statement you made in our conversation, Daniel, because you, you started by saying that we've entered a new, more dangerous phase of this conflict because Russia is winning. And what's wild about that is that even though the U.S. seems to be aware of that, uh, what we're told both from the government and the mainstream media is completely different. We, we continue to hear about um, basically that Russia is taking this drum, this drubbing and uh, militarily they can't, you know, measure up and things like this. But the reality on the ground seems to be quite different. And actually, I almost feel like lately we, we may have seen uh, one or two mainstream uh, platforms actually acknowledge that Russia is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, making more progress there in the conflict than they previously thought. So it's like we're being told sort of, frankly, an outright lie on one hand about what's happening uh, in Ukraine and how Russia is faring in it, while on the other side uh, the U.S. and the West are pushing seemingly to uh, uh, have this war go on for uh, as long as possible precisely because they're not able to decisively defeat Russia. And so what it reveals to me, honestly, Daniel, is something that people have been saying from the very beginning of this conflict, and that is the fact that the U.S. is absolutely uh, willing to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian and uh, giving this uh, escalation uh, that, you know, continues to seem to be
2: the case. I mean, U.S. policy is really hitting a, a huge roadblock here. I remember, you know, it was it was NATO that provoked this war, uh, and, and NATO that assumed that once the war began that the Russia would be easily repelled. And all those wonderful weapons you know, that are being shipped to the Ukraine and all that aid, et cetera, et cetera, you know, would, would work their magic and lead to the humiliation of, a, of, a, of, 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 uh, of Moscow and the overthrow of, um, of Vladimir Putin. But it's not working out that way. And so, so the U.S. Is is, 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 you know, faces the question of what to do next. Um, and the only answer it has is escalation. That's what's so important about these HIMAR missiles. Uh, I mean, they, they do they do raise the ante. Um, and if you keep raising the ante, then really bad things will happen. In other words, a a general war which will plunge the entire region, the entire continent into a into a military conflict.
0: Yeah. And I actually think that point can't be overstated. Daniel, when we talk about the real implications and potential danger of this ongoing escalation, which in truth really gets to the root of the war in Ukraine itself, which you accurately described as being instigated by NATO. And that uh, uh, potential is an open conflict between the United States And Russia, two nuclear armed powers that could have, I mean, you know, just I don't even know. uh, Catastrophic is the word I'm looking for. There'll be catastrophic uh, potentially impacts for humanity, the whole of Earth, if it comes to that. But this is what has been steadfastly and consistently concealed From uh, the American people who, you know, have been given just just completely, you know, narrow, decontextualized version of what's really happening with uh, the war in Ukraine so that the U.S. government can continue basically doing uh, what it wants while pretending to uh, respect the sovereignty and self-determination of Ukraine. And so there's a real insidious aspect to it uh, when we look at it, Daniel, to where Americans don't even seem to be aware of the very real danger that we're in at this moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, in, in, uh, in June 1914, a, a Serbian nationalist uh, knocked over, you know, the uh, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the, of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And, and the result, a month later, 31 days to be exact, was not merely World War I, but it really, since World War I, really segued, seamlessly into World War II, it was a, the result was 40 years of catastrophic warfare, which, you know, the toll, the toll is, is, is impossible, it's impossible to fathom what the toll was, literally tens of millions of people died. So, so the, so the West, at least as far as the Europe and America and Russia is concerned, um, you know, has seen 75 years, 77 years of peace. But it's very possible. And, and it's very and the the danger is very great that we are now transitioning into a, an equally prolonged period of war, um, with potentially the same the same results. And and, and uh, yeah, people should be aware. They, you know, they, um, the greatest anti-war movement in history should take to the streets to, pre- you know, to prevent this from happening. But now there's this complete silence, complete apathy, complete faith in the ability of, of politicians to work things out. But they can't. I mean, I mean, Joe Biden can't work this out any more than he can work things out in Uvalde, Texas. There's a complete failure across the board.
1: Mm. I think that's uh, that was a, a very uh, appropriate uh, uh, comparison there, particularly since it is the U.S. government and its allies that are stalling, uh, uh, scuttling any types of negotiations that uh, the Ukrainian government under Volodymyr Zelensky, that they even if he wanted to uh, uh, negotiate with Russia, the U.S. government and, and their allies are not letting him do it. Do you think that even that will uh, uh, begin to, uh, the cracks in that foundation will begin to, to show as, I mean, I got to think that, that Zelensky realizes that this is not a winning gambit for him or the Ukrainian people at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean. As I said, we're really,
2: are, we are really entering into the crunch. At a certain point, Zelensky's got to realize he's got to cut his losses and salvage what he can, because the, but the the Russian offensive is gaining strength, and I can't see how how Zelensky can turn the tide. So at some point, he's got to bite the bullet and enter and enter into negotiations. But if he does, you know, he'll face a right-wing revolt by the Azov battalion, you know, who don't want to see, you know, their their dream of a of a Bandera-led Ukraine, you know, being ruined by some, you know, by some Jew from the uh, from the eastern part of the country. You know, the 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 possi- you know, the, the, the possibilities are explosive there. Yeah, you know, so so we we really may be past the tipping point. I don't know. I mean, I'm certainly in favor of negotiations. I certainly am I'm in favor of de-escalation. But something tells me that the you know that, that once an explosion begins, you can't put it back. in you know, you can't you can't you can't de de explode the artillery shell. Uh, and so um, so uh, it, it seems that things are just like bursting out of control and uh and the, the possibilities of uh, of escalation of Rome.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I really, really agree with what you say about, um, you know, the need for the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement to really be on alert uh, uh, to, you know, fill the streets and really fight back against this and to keep the U.S. from uh, pulling all of us into disaster. Well, we thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here Jackie Lukman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the Biden administration seeks to address the serious issue of inflation here in the United States. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Robert Hockett, Edward Cornell, professor of law at Cornell University and senior counsel for Westwood Capital. Dr. Hockett, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hey, Sean, really great to be with you. Thanks so much. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Hockett, the the
0: Biden administration has uh, described addressing the issue of inflation as his, quote, top economic priority, uh, saying in a recent op-ed for The Wall Street Journal, I ran for president because I was tired of the so-called trickle-down economy. We now have a chance to build on a historic recovery with an economy that works for working families. The most important thing we can do now to transition from rapid Recovery to stable, steady growth is to bring inflation down. Now, of course, this comes as, uh, you know, Joe Biden sees his approval ratings not doing very well with, I think, quite a bit of frustration from people in the United States around the economy and how it's uh, hitting them in their pocket. And so I'm just sort of uh, generally curious uh, uh, how you're sort of uh, seeing this whole deal and how you're sort of analyzing what, Uh, Joe Biden is putting a a fourth here, doctor, um, as he attempts to, you know, at least on the surface to really get a handle on this thing.
3: Yeah. So I think, uh, Sean, that um, he is, I think, a little bit better at thinking this stuff through than he is at articulating it. Um, It looks to me as though what's going on in the administration is that they're thinking of the inflation problem in sort of three pieces or three parts, right? There's a sort of short-term volatility or price volatility problem that's sort of rooted in the war that's going on in Ukraine right now. There's a medium-term supply chain problem in the sense that there's lots of backlog at various warehouses, and there's still a lot of disruptions to sort global transport of goods. Um, And then finally, there's a longer term problem which has been going on for decades, which is that we've outsourced our productive capacity massively to various other jurisdictions worldwide where there are basically less effective labor protections and lower wages. I think from everything I hear from those in the administration that they're basically addressing all three of those. I do wish that they would actually articulate it that way and sort of make that a little bit clearer uh, to people. Um, At the moment, though, Uh, the message seems to be driven primarily by the sort of imperative of looking like they care. I think they do care. But if you make your principal object, um, making yourself look like you care, (laughs) that makes people a little bit more suspicious uh, than they have to be.
1: You know, and I, I, I get that, you know, Biden may be thinking through this better than he is articulating it, which he's not been good at doing. I don't think ever for a, at least for the past few years. But I do wonder about the effectiveness of this plan because it's it's supposed to be a three-pronged approach uh where you know the first thing he says they they want to do is to uh, call on Congress to pass clean en- clean energy tax credits. Uh, and investments, and then demand that lawmakers take up uh, his plan to make housing more affordable, reduce the price of prescription drugs, and work to lower the cost of child and elder care. And then he talks about reducing the federal deficit. And, I, and I'm, I'm not saying that these are not good things. Certainly, there are things that should be done. But I think that in the, in the context of all of the money that is always given to the Department of Defense and that is particularly being thrown at Ukraine right now, couldn't this whole inflation problem be solved by just not funding so much war?
3: I, I think that's right. I mean, basically, the I mean, a, a really important point and an underappreciated point, it seems to me, hardly anybody seems to be talking about it. Right. In other words, a lot of folk, um, I think, are right to point to the war in Ukraine as causing a good bit of price volatility, at least in the short term right now. But very few seem to be talking about the fact that the war might well be being protracted precisely because it's turning into a kind of proxy war between great powers. And the longer it runs, right? of course, the longer that volatility is going to last, and hence the longer... Uh, The short term component of the inflation problem is going to be with us. The other thing is, I do tend to think that um, if the administration were actually a little bit better at articulating the way it's viewing the problem and the Requisite solutions, it might actually be more effective at pursuing them as well, right? Because a good part of thinking clearly is being able to speak clearly about what you're thinking, right? You're kind of, I think, clarifying your own thought processes as you sort of try to figure out ways to articulate those processes. And I do think that it would be kind of great if the administration not only spoke about, but then also did. Um, the following, basically taking serious measures to sort of reconstitute re-con- uh, our basic manufacturing capacities and infrastructure capacities along lines that are environmentally friendly uh, and that are job-creating here at home uh, and that basically uh, lay the foundation for the industries of, of tomorrow, which will presumably or hopefully, if we if we do it right, uh, be much more earth-friendly and, and justice-friendly uh, than are the industries that are still the incumbents.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, unfortunately, uh, you may be correct, doctor, when you talk about how uh, the war in Ukraine seems set to continue on for some time. And when we take a step back and sort of look at how um, the economic situation has been impacting sort of the rank and file American, and not just the war in Ukraine, but also even if you want to look throughout the 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 period um, since the pandemic. I mean, not that the economy was in you know tip top shape before uh, the coronavirus, but I just feel like in a number of ways, people have really been feeling uh the pain in terms of rise in in prices and even the scarcity of things like baby formula. I mean, whoever thought that that would be um, a, a Scarce product uh, here in the US. And <clears throat> it's just hard to feel like. All of this is not having sort of a real uh, political impact. In fact, as I, I sort of alluded to earlier, that that seems to be a good a bit of what is motivating the Obama admin excuse me, the Biden administration in this moment, particularly as we're in a midterm year. And before you know it, in two years, uh, there'll be another presidential election. So it feels like the Democrats have a lot on the line, honestly, as it pertains to a lot of these issues uh, that as of yet, they don't seem to have much. Of a, a critical response to, and, and I'm just wondering, like, what do you see as like the political fallout uh, uh, for this uh, potentially?
3: Yeah, I think that the the Democrats are missing um, a really great and important opportunity here, um, and I, I wish that they would uh, actually. Act on it a little bit better. So, as you guys have doubtless noticed uh, of late, a lot of the inflation discourse, at least insofar as it's been the product of, you know, kind of the usual suspects talking, people like Larry Summers and uh, and Stephen Ratner and the and the like, they're basically playing the old card that we've always seen played, apparently ever since the seventies or so, which is that this is somehow the fault of labor, labor making overly high demands, or that wages are going up too fast, or the worker shortage is to blame, or whatever. And the problem, of course, one of the problems with that line of argument that's coming from so-called Democrats like Larry Summers uh, is that it treats, right, essentially wages and salaries as the sole component of price. But in fact, last I checked, there's another component of price, and that's the markup, i.e. the profits. And there's lots of, um, we have lots of evidence, both anecdotal and sort of more wide-rangingly statistical, that there are tons and tons and tons of price rises happening right now thanks to what CEOs and CFOs are doing under cover of all of the talk about inflation. And nobody's talking about reducing those profit takes or preventing that price gouging, except for a few people. Uh, and indeed, as you know, right, basically corporate America is making literally record profits, higher profits than ever before. And furthermore, they're engaging in record uh, numbers of stock buybacks, which is also a typical way of basically not passing on cost savings or the like, uh, to, uh, consumers. Uh, and so it would, I think, behoove the Democrats to point this out, not just by saying, oh, price gouging, price gouging, but by pointing out that actually, insofar as wages and salaries are rising, which they are, Mr. Biden is actually doing a great job. That's kind of what we want to see happening. But it only you can only do that in a non-inflationary way if you're simultaneously preventing um, the, the, the CFOs and the CEOs from raising uh, prices and passing on those uh, labor gains uh, to consumers. And they're not doing that. Uh, and I think that that's again a, a, a terrible missed opportunity because it both understates the good that is in the current that we see in the current recovery. and it foregoes the opportunity to eliminate the one bad um, that is now attending that particular recovery.
1: And, you know, I'm wondering how you are also seeing uh, Janet Yellen's, uh, U.S. uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's recent comments uh, Tuesday, where she said that she failed to anticipate how long high inflation would continue to plague American consumers uh, under the Biden administration. She actually said, I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take, probably one of the first times (laughs) in certainly this administration and recent memories. I think where you hear a, a politician of any stripe um, I guess it could be argued whether she is actually a politician or not uh, but but a political appointee admit that they were wrong um, but as the Federal Reserve is about to raise interest rates and they are promising to raise interest rates uh, repeatedly I mean that could also affect employment. Um, It could drive unemployment. So, I mean, what is the Biden administration's answer for that?
3: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things. That, that's a, such an important point, and I'm so so, so glad you brought it up. And it, and it kind of dovetails out of the previous one, right? So basically, um, if you view the only appropriate response to an inflation problem as raising rates, then you are effectively agreeing with Larry Summers that the problem here is that labor is basically reclaiming some of the share that used to be its, right, of national product, right? Up until the 1970s, there was a rough division between labor and capital, roughly 50-50 split uh, of the surplus generated by economic activity. Since the 70s, that has, the, the labor share has declined lower and lower and lower. And of course, the capital share, that's to say the small number of shareholders who own most of the stocks, have taken almost all of the gains over the last 50 years. So what's underway right now is a kind of rebalancing, which is actually a good thing. And the only thing that can subvert it is if there's price gouging going on that generates inflation, which then leads the Fed to raise rates and cause an artificial recession and throw all of these newly employed people out of work. Thereby lowering wages again to where they were, um, where they've, wh- where the path has been since the 1970s. That is a terrible mistake, and they shouldn't be looking at it that way or thinking of this that way. They ought to be, on the one hand, having the Fed go ahead and do what it does, not sort of overstimulate the economy now that there's plenty of natural stimulation in the productive processes themselves. But they should, you know, not be encouraging the Fed to raise rates to induce an artificial recession, and they should also be doing lots of public investment in those areas of the economy that are still being underinvested in. For example, the green industries of tomorrow, that would keep generating good high paying jobs and basically restore the middle class uh, and the sort of uh, well-to-do working class of America. And you could do that again in a non-inflationary way, as long as you're basically having a look at what kinds of gouging activities might be going on. With respect to Yellen's observation, I also thought that was very weird. It felt like a show trial. Like she was sort of apologizing in public and saying, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa and flagellating herself. And I I just think that was, you know, kind of, unnecessary and, and also just untrue. They never, the, the so-called transitory people, the people who are saying, you know they, they call them team transitory now, who are saying that the inflation uh, pressures are transitory, were right. And I don't believe that they think that they were wrong. In other words, what they were saying was, look, there have been severe supply constraints thanks to COVID, which basically reduced production on the one hand, and also made it a lot harder to transport that which is produced on the other hand. And so they said, once we get the supply chains restored. And once we restore domestic production, which the Clintons and the Bushes basically hollowed out, then we'll have plenty more supply. So there won't be too much money chasing too few goods because there will be more goods. That's what they said all along. And that's what Yellen should be saying now. This seems to be this kind of weird sort of ritualistic, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, seems to have been formulated for public consumption to make Larry Summers stop attacking her or something. And I don't think they should do that. They should simply attack Larry Summers instead because he's wrong. (laughs)
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Hockett, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Spudick in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. back to by any means necessary on radio sputnik in washington dc i'm your host sean blackman here jackie lukeman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us And today we're having an update on developments in the Horn of Africa and U.S. interests in the region. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Simon Tesfamarium, Executive Director of the New Africa Institute. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And Simon, here lately, as we continue to see conflict in the Horn of Africa, uh, specifically regarding uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea, we see the United States government uh, at different levels seeming to threaten uh, the two countries with a, quote, legal designation of genocide as uh, uh, the U.S. continues to accuse the two countries uh, falsely, I think, of both committing genocide and of stopping food aid from uh, uh, entering the region. And it's wild because, you know, we're seeing U.S. officials sort of call for this designation open Openly. And I'm thinking of people like uh, California's 30th District Congressman uh, Brad Sherman, uh, who have said recently, quote, I've suggested ways to pressure the Ethiopian and especially and particularly the Eritrean government, which has, of course, the ports that could be used, particularly by interrupting sea traffic going, you know, even hundreds of miles away from Eritrea. And I think a determination of genocide would spur our administration to do more than simply send harsh letters to Addis Ababa and Asmara. Only the administration can provide the pressure, and only the administration can use the U.S. Navy to put additional pressure on two countries involved. Now, on the one hand, Simon, I think it should be said that, I mean, the U.S. doesn't have uh, the legal authority, really, to sort of legally declare that genocide is happening in one country or another. I mean, that power lies with uh, the United Nations. But be that as it may, I mean, why do you think that uh, the U.S. seems to continue to sort of dangle? this uh, threat of legally uh, designating genocide in the region, and how does it impact uh, what's happening there in the Horn? Uh,
4: Yeah, so, you know, the United States is, at this current moment, um, continuing its imperial policies towards the entire Horn of Africa, Uh, seeking to control, uh, you know, the Horn through um, its puppet, its former puppet, uh, its... its, uh, former policeman in the region, TPLF, which eventually became a rebel force and now has been degraded to such a degree that it's boxed into the to that region of northern Ethiopia. And um, because it has no uh, other form of leverage, really, I mean, uh, it, it does have multiple forms of leverage, I should correct, with, with Ethiopia. But, um, you know, in regards to really uh, slowing the march of, uh, you know, the peoples of the Horn of Africa pushing for national sovereignty and self-reliance, TPLF is a a convenient um, uh, mode of leverage over both Eritrea and Ethiopia, maintaining a permanent crisis-type situation, if not an outright return to power of TPLF. So uh, it is a way of controlling the region. Um, Of course, there are other modes of doing this, uh, financial forms, um, sanctions, Uh, You can go down the list, uh, you know, all the tactics that the U.S. uses to uh, control countries around the world. But um, in particular, this is the most concerning one to the people of the Horn of Africa, given the history of TPLF. And so what they uh, had been doing all of last year was trying to push for the uh, genocide designation uh, until about December when uh, Mali Fee, um, the uh, assistant secretary of state, uh, State Department basically said that uh, we'd be taking a um, uh, that they'd be taking a step back on those measures, the legal proceedings. And um, the thing about that is, you know, why is a, desi- a, a, de- a genocide designation so important for the United States? You know, they tried to usually um, have this veneer of legality uh, for the imperial actions that they take, uh, whether it's uh, hum- um, RTP, uh, humanitarian intervention, a.k.a. really imperialist war towards a the country, um, they, get, they have to have that veneer of legality. And they often do that through the genocide designation. And as we saw with uh, Darfur um, in the early 2000s, they actually had a uh, unilateral designation, and they did that by uh, working through the academic institutions. And then that process worked up through um, Congress, uh, officially leading to uh, official um, uh, genocide designation. And so that then allows them to take more hostile measures towards the country and using that as leverage to keep these countries in line. And so uh, they're trying to do the same thing um, because it is unpopular to do what they want to do. you know, which is basically to command and control Ethiopia and Eritrea and all the peoples of the Horn. It's just it's a it's, it's not a very popular move around the world. And as we saw, uh, multiple U.N. Security Council resolutions to interfere and intervene um, uh, in the region, uh, you know, specifically on the issue of Tugay, Um It was about 12, 13, 14. I can't forget. The, I can't remember the exact number. Excuse me. Um, Uh, failed resolutions, you know, that couldn't get by the UN Security Council. And so now that's why they're going the unilateral route, because they're desperate, because they can't get others in the world to go along with their insane policies towards Ethiopia and Eritrea.
1: And you know, Simon, this uh, latest move by the United States actually connects to, uh, as you pointed out earlier, the imperialist history of US involvement in the region, in the Horn of Africa, but particularly around water politics as they are you know experienced as as you wrote in your piece that you know water politics are essential in the horn and the wider region and the the reason for that actually is connected to US activity in Libya and what was done there so i'm wondering if you can make that connection and why that's so important to what the US is trying to do now and and seems to be Failing
4: to do. Absolutely. Water is a critical resource for all countries around the world. um, And the U.S., like all countries, know this. And, um, you know, uh, what they did in Libya was to destroy their water infrastructure, totally degrade this country and basically take it backward in history. Uh, You know, uh, bombing it into submission and, you know, weakening the population and weakening resistance. And so, um, you know, this collect, it's really a form of collective punishment and the Ethiopian people, um, you know, want to build a dam and have constructed a dam using their own money, uh, at that, um, you know, many con- Ethiopians contributed to, to the building of this dam and, um, it is seen as a, a symbol of national sovereignty for the Ethiopian people. Um, you know, um, and so, uh, The the idea, you know, this this national sovereignty, you know, this 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 symbol of national sovereignty is a problem when you're talking about going in the other direction, having a nation submit totally to, uh, you know, your to to the to the region to the hegemon of the world, which is the United States. And so, what they're trying to do um, is is weaken that, you know, slow that. And um, and so um, you know they're playing politics with Egypt and Sudan and interfering in the region. Uh, it doesn't matter which administration it is, uh, you know whether it's the Democrats or Republicans, because at one point Trump said, uh, you know, that Egypt should maybe bomb the dam. You know, so uh, <laughs> so it's just it's it, it's it's a way of weakening um, you know the national sovereignty. And I should say that the, the why it's a symbol of national sovereignty is. You know, just like oil, um, you know, water is such a critical resource where, you know, and, and even electricity, um, these are critical resources, energy, uh, water, oil. So to be able to um, generate uh, both, um, you know, a huge, uh, you know, a huge supply of, of, of energy and, 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 you know, to the electricity that is so great that, you know, you'll be able to, uh, Ethiopia will be able to export it to other countries in the region. Uh, as well as being able to control water resources there, this is something that will significantly improve the lives of the Ethiopian people, will be a success uh, for the government there, um, will be, again, like I said, a a symbol of national sovereignty. So uh, the U.S. sees this as a challenge to their control over the region, and so they have to stop it.
0: Yeah, and, you know, this whole narrative around uh, uh, supposed genocide or uh, the stopping of, you know, uh, uh, food aid into the horn is something that um, the U.S. has been harping on for a while, Simon, this notion that there's been like a, a siege of Tigray. And the thing is, there have been reporters and others that have been on the ground in Ethiopia that uh, refute this. I mean, I was looking at a recent article uh, published by uh, Ann Garrison, a U.S. based journalist that I know is a colleague of yours, Simon. And um, she also spoke to a New Zealand journalist named uh, uh, Alastair, and they both saw, you know, aid convoys that were traveling on the uh, Djibouti Ethiopia Highway on the way to uh Mikkel, which is the 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 capital of Tigray. And you know, uh Alastair Thompson said that you know they didn't see any signs of Comboys uh, being stopped or hindered, and you know, also said that uh, you know people like Brad Sherman's their claims that these trucks were being stopped from traveling to Mikkel were uh, straight up unfounded. And so there are people that are seeing with their own eyes what what's happening there on the ground. I mean, not to mention you know the people of those two countries themselves, but you know we rarely, if ever, uh, get to hear from them. Certainly not in the U.S. Uh, a corporate owned media. And so it 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 feels like almost – this narrative, it feels almost like a replay of what we've seen in terms of how U.S. imperialism tries to uh, concoct these narratives to try to justify uh, – um, uh, uh, aggression in uh, a number of ways. I, I mean I feel like we've you know uh, seen that uh, like if we you know like during the Obama administration and uh, with the bombing of Syria that supposedly was taking place, quote, to stop genocide and was championed by, you know, these hawks like Susan Rice and Samantha Power. And so it's 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 a it's a worrisome sort of thing, I think, Simon, that we continue to see the U.S. Uh, really harp on this because I mean we've seen uh, the devastation, impacts when they've done this in the past. So it just seems particularly important that not only do we push back against the false narratives, but that we continue to to organize for the self-determination and sovereignty of uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and the Horn of Africa.
4: Absolutely, 100%. So, so th- right now, what they are trying to do is, like you said, uh, you know, push this war with this narrative um, uh, that, that they have to man- really their manufacturing consent. Um, and actually back in, uh, m- on May 9th of last year, we published at the New Africa Institute, uh, the disinformation, uh, Integrai report. And this report just outlines very clearly using 300 plus references to show how they are denying obvious facts by TPLF themselves, by even, even mainstream media journalists who say some things they cast them aside and kind of just, you know, gloss over facts to create just a singular type of narrative of what's going on in the region there to push uh, TPLF's war and aggression on behalf of the United States against the people of Ethiopia and Eritrea. So, um, you know, we saw this and people in the diaspora in alliance with uh, progressives, black peoples uh, worldwide, uh, and, and specifically I can speak to experience here in the U.S., uh, it was an incredible amount of anger, um, and this led to organizing. And basically, because this this was against the U.S. narrative, one of the things that people were saying was no more to the uh, disinformation. That was a very specific phrase that was used: uh, no more disinformation and things like you know news, uh, CNN fake news, uh, you know things like that. So the fact that people are organizing around information and narratives and anger at that uh, it was a sort of a rallying point for a lot of people and seeing that what we saw was the um you know the pentagon itself calling out uh individuals such as myself um you know and actually uh saying that they're going to go in the state department um you know going after um uh, you know, disinformation on Twitter and talk, saying that they're like Molly Fee going in front of Congress and saying that we're going to go after these tech companies to, you know, control the situation in Ethiopia or trends and all that kind of stuff in Ethiopia. And we saw that actually happen. I was literally banned from Twitter without any warning and no explanation. That makes sense uh, to this very day. Um, and others, uh, an entire movement has been banned off of Twitter because it was a form of organizing, uh, a, a place of organizing in this new world that we live in. And so um, and now disinformation is being uh, targeted with multiple bills in Congress. And in fact, one of the bills, uh, Senate Bill 3199 specifically says they're going after people in the diaspora um, uh, who are pushing anti-American sentiment. Uh, Imagine that. You know, in a time when we have, uh, you know, this board of this disinformation board being created and people calling it the Ministry of Truth and, you know, so unpopular that, it, you know, it has to uh, disappear, you know, after a few days. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's clear that they're scared of the so-called disinformation agents. And I think the disinformation agent is the new terrorist. You know, when Bush was calling a terrorist, now Biden is calling a disinformation agent. And how long before would they send us to Guantanamo for simply telling the truth, simply presenting facts and changing a narrative? Um, but they don't understand that the, the world has changed. You just can't put the, you know, the, the, the cat in the bag. And, you know, it's just we, we, we're, in a, we're in a time when, um, you know, everybody can share information anytime, anywhere and they think they can control all of that. And that's insane. So to me, um, they're not going to stop the march of the people. The anger is growing. They can pretend like they're, you know, they, 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 there's this, this lull in um, what's going on in the Horn at the current moment between TPLF and the entire people of the Horn because of, uh, you know, the US, basically the US making the threats against Ethiopia. Um, And as we know, Ethiopia is a very dependent nation at the current moment because of, um, you know, famine. I mean, famine is a serious threat there. You know, we're talking about 20 million people annually, anywhere from 10 to 20 million people needing food aid, um, which a lot of a lot of that comes from outside. Um, You're talking about uh, three billion in revenue coming from Ethiopian airlines, which could potentially be the target of sanctions, as Cameron Hudson of the CIA said um, and, um, you know, you can go on and on and on. They have multiple forms of leverage over Ethiopia as it continues to go towards this route of national sovereignty and freedom and self-reliance. It's not going to, it's going to take time. So using that as using these threats as a form of leverage, there's appeasement going on on the side of the, you know, on the Ethiopian side. Eritrea doesn't necessarily have to do that at all. Um, there is Jendai Frazier said back in 2008 at the University of Washington when I was there um, we have no leverage over Eritrea was her exact words. So, um, you know, and that was back then, you know, now, you know, battle hardened Eritrea that has gone through, you know, successive rounds of sanctions and the hostility, uh, is even more, you know, uh, leveraged, it uh, be leveraged. So, um, this is the reality of the people of the Horn, the countries of the horn. Um, and so, um, b- because of this, uh, kind of, slowed-down situation with TPLF. I mean, they've been uh, really, you know, uh, uh, you know, boxed in into the region of Tigray, hated by the peoples of Ethiopia and Eritrea at the current moment. Um, the, the, like, it's this, this lull, But something is eventually going to have to happen because um, TPLF, now you have refugees that are leaving Tigray because they hate TPLF, because they're being conscripted by TPLF. Three hundred to 500,000 uh, people Uh, It was admitted on Grand TV that, you know, they died in this war. Half a million people uh, since November 2020, which is insane. And so uh, what I'm trying to say is that um, they're in a bad situation. The narrative is working against them, um, and they're trying everything in their power to, um, you know, use this as a form of leverage to stop the march of the peoples of the Horn of Africa towards uh, sovereignty self-reliance, dignity, self-respect, control of their destinies, and the lives of of their people. So uh, anyway, um, I I think this is what's currently going on, and and people have to uh, get ready to continue organizing and continue challenging the narratives that they're pushing.
0: Absolutely. We definitely want to encourage people to check out uh, the piece you mentioned earlier, uh, Disinformation in Tigray, Manufacturing Consent for Secession is War, which people can see at newafricainstitute.org. That's newafricainstitute.org. And we thank you so much, Simon, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, June 2nd, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to get... Give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us.
1: That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at two 20- zero. 521-1320. That's 202, 521, 1320 at 320 PM. Eastern today. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. You can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we are streaming for your viewing pleasure live right now on Rumble, Rumble rumble.com slash c slash b a m necessary the chat is live and remember friends at three twenty p.m eastern today you can call us at 202-521-1320 that's 202-521-1320 but wherever you are in this world and however you do it we want to hear from you we most certainly do we most certainly do and
0: uh at the top of the hour a couple of interesting points on uh pop culture here you know the wire actually debuted today, 20 years ago. That's right. June 2nd, 2002, The Wire uh, debuted on HBO. Of course, it was a gritty sort of drama uh, based in Baltimore. I mean, introduce us to Idris Elba, Michael K. Williams, rest in peace. Also a big role for uh, Michael B. Jordan, who's a pretty big star now. Wood Harris in there. Really good show. I was telling Jackie off there that, you know, I really liked the the, the first season. Kind of hard for me to get into some of the, the subsequent seasons. Also for you Star Wars fans, you'll be happy to know that James Earl Jones will be reprising his role as Darth Vader in the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, which I believe is an exclusive to uh, Disney Plus as Disney owns uh, uh, the rights to the Star Wars stuff. Uh, looks like he'll be in the third episode of Obi Wan Kenobi, and he will be voicing it. I, he won't be like you know physically there. You know, James Earl Jones is ninety one years old.
1: That's wild. I did not realize he was ninety one, but I, I'm Yo. gonna finally get back into Star Wars. I'm gonna watch that just for him because I, I've, I've I'm all Star Wars out
0: Yeah, and I mean he's he's lived long enough to reprise some of his. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it. At least three of his biggest roles because he's doing. Uh, uh, Darth Vader he reprised his role as King Jaffe Jopher in the Coming to America sequel which I mean I haven't seen it I don't, I don't know I, I'm not in a rush like like you know if it ain't broke don't fix it you feel me and, and he also I was just thinking about he reprised his role as Mufasa in the live action Lion King joint remember oh
1: I did not realize
0: that's right oh, okay. that's right okay. so You know, you, you know, people talk about my voice, but James Earl Jones, that's, that's a voice.
1: That that is the
0: voice. Yeah. Uh, So be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by The Good Doctor. Cherise Burden Stelly, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Political Science at Carleton College, Visiting Scholar with the Race and Capitalism Project at the University of Chicago, and co editor of the book Organized Fight Win Black Communist Women's Political Writing. Dr. Burden Stelly, thanks so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you so much for having me. And I think you should see the second coming, uh, coming to America. It's not for it, It's funny. It's problematic. But the first one was, too. But <laughs> I think you should see it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, OK, I, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Your reconda- recommendation. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Burton Staley. I, I was reading your introduction, but I believe um, there's been an update. Aren't you moving to a new position here soon? I sure am.
5: I'm starting August 13th, I will be an associate professor of African American studies at Wayne State University.
0: Well, congratulations to you and the students at Wayne State, who will undoubtedly benefit from your tutelage. And uh, Dr. Burton uh, we've been talking on the show uh, to folks on the ground about the recent election in uh, Colombia, where we're going to see the uh, progressive left-leaning ticket of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez of the historic PAC uh, go in a runoff against uh, Rodolfo Hernandez and Marlene Castillo, of uh, the anti-corruption league, which is interesting because Hernandez, I believe is actually set to uh, uh, go to court for some uh, corruption charges. Um, But you were also on the ground in Colombia as an election observer. And uh, I was hoping you could let us know, like, you know, what have you been seeing? What has the uh, feeling like been there on the ground? Uh, And I'm generally curious, not only what you've been seeing in terms of the election, but also just kind of generally the sorts of things you've been able to do and experience your time there.
5: Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I want to give a huge shout out to, uh, the organization Afro resistance, as well as GGJ, the grassroots, uh, global justice network who organized a real actually historic, uh, delegation for the, um, election observations. Um, it was all women of color. And primarily black women, which is the first delegation of its kind to to be on the ground in, in Colombia to um, observe, to be sort of outside observers for the elections on May 29th. Um, and prior to the elections, we uh, you know, had the good fortune to meet with some um, grassroots organizations and in Colombia, primarily black women's um and black queer organizations, um, to get, you know, their sense of things and um, you know, to, to gain some insight in terms of the types of organizing and you know, the struggles for self-determination that were uh happening on the ground there. And so uh, over and we were based in Cali and in Buenaventura, which are um, some of the the locations with the highest population of, of Afro-descendant Colombians. And overwhelmingly, um, this population was absolutely um, excited and um, um, galvanized by um, the campaign of, of Petro and Francia, primarily because of Francia. Francia is actually a very sort of important uh, and unique candidate, not just because she's a black woman, but because she has a long history of being a grassroots organizer. Um, um, she's very much rooted in the community, and and it was her vice presidency that was able to galvanize um, persons who had not voted before, um, a section of workers and of of um, uh, African, you know, Af- Afro descendants in Colombia to um, to bring them to to Petro's campaign, and he had he had run previously. Um, but but his showing in this particular election was stronger, not least because of having um Francia on the ticket. And so um in terms of um the the day of the elections, it was interesting. I was um in in Buenaventura and our delegation went to eleven different sites and what are sort of um on the ground, um the person from Uh, who was sort of uh, guiding us around to these different elections, let us know was that the turnout was actually quite low, that um, she was saying that in um, regional and local elections, um, the streets will be crowded, the lines will be around the block, um, and people are, you know, are very sort of engaged um, politically in the local elections. But that for, for the presidential election, because of the polarized nature, because of some of the after effects of, of COVID and also because of widespread intimidation, um, the turnouts were not as high. So, for example, at each of the polling sites, what they do is they will post um, a list of the persons who are eligible to vote at that site. Um, on on the outside of the door. That's actually one of the sort of requirements of um, of uh, of voting, right, or of the of the um, the at, at the polling sites. But what she was telling us is that some of the paramilitary forces would have lists of names of people who are voting at different sites um, to intimidate them, and to and if they would go to vote, they would be subjected to particular forms um, of violence. And mind you, this is pretty important because. Ah, uh, Buenaventura is as one um, one of the organizers, the on the ground organizers, explained, Buenaventura is the laboratory for the violence and death that's applied to other Black people throughout uh, Colombia. So, for example, between t- 2022 alone, more than 3,000 uh, people, and that's a conservative estimate, um, were murdered in Buenaventura, which is a city of 400,000. And so, um, and for me, that intimidation or the you know was a palpable because I was very jarred. Uh, by the huge military and police presence. The military was very prevalent in the more rural areas that we visited, whereas the, the policia was were more um, present in the sort of the central and the more urbanized areas. But, you know, it was, um, there were a lot of them and, and the, the police had sort of sidearms, but the military, they were carrying large weapons like AK-47s. And so I can see how that, be intimidating. Likewise, when we were having a conversation um, at one of the polls in one of the rural areas, there was a military, a soldier who was all up on us, like right up on us And as one of those sort of local leaders was um, having a conversation explaining what the the political and material conditions were in that area. Um, He was like right over my shoulder, gun touching me basically. And so um, so it seems that, you know, intimidation, um, was a big factor, but despite all of this, it seemed to me that the Afro, um, Colombian populations that we engage with were very much in support of, of Petro and Francia. And even when we were talking to people outside of the polls, they wouldn't say, you know, because of a uh, fear, they wouldn't say names, but they would say words like cambio, um, you know, Change to reference you know that Colombia needs a change and to them the pacto historico is is what what represented um um that reality so yeah
1: you know that that is really important to understand the 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 conditions that people in Colombia are going to the polls under because this is not just like a new thing this is this this violence has carried over from the massive uh protests that were sparked in uh, Buenaventura, uh against the government uh, a few years ago. So can can you give people an an idea of how that history connects to this this current campaign? The, the you know the historic uh, pact and why it's so important to for the historic pact to win to give people the change. That they were fighting for, literally fighting for in the streets, holding Buenaventura for 22 days against everything uh, Ivan Duque could throw at them.
5: Yeah, so so Buenaventura is really important because it's a port city, and so I think it was it was in there in 2019 or 2020. It was there was a a, um, a historic strike that, as you said, held the city for 22 uh, 22 days, and there was massive violence against this population. Um, because of the strategic importance of of Buenaventura as a port city, and so people were blocking the bridge. Now, there's this. Um, so with Buenaventura, there's like the Isla, the island area, and then there's the mainland area, and there's only one kind of very narrow bridge that connects these two sections. And so, what uh, organizers and protesters would do would, would be to block this bridge and also to use their boats to block um, um, ships from docking and basically disrupting commerce. And so, of course, these um, these protesters and strikers were subjected to extraordinary violence, right, from the police and the military being um, murdered, um, shot down, disappeared, and, and intimidated in a number of ways. But um, part of what they're protesting is that even after the Peace Accords of 2016, their material conditions have not necessarily changed, and they're still being suggested to... Um, excuse me. Subjected to the violence and terrorism of of um mil- of paramilitary organizations, um, their economic conditions have not changed, um, you know. And again, this is an area that is primarily um Afro Colombians, and as is the case often with with black people throughout the African diaspora, um, violence and dispossession is legitimated against these populations. Another thing that's happening is that. Um, they're being because um these populations are on some of the the best land, right? They have um and and have sort of control over particular land that corporations want to turn into um high-rise hotels, that corporations want to um dispossess them of, there are legal legal means that are being used to disallow them from um to, to dispossess them from the land and, and and to disallow them to stay there. So one example is that Near the ports, you know, there's these huge containers, um obviously, that are full of goods. And so what happens is that the these containers would just be dropped from cranes. and they produce vibrations that are so intense that they were causing the houses around those areas to crack, right? to be um to have structural damage because of of the huge vibrations. And so what happens what the government did was disallow them. To be able to bring lumber to those areas to um, fix their homes, and so all of this is part of a process of of dispossessing these people of the of the land that is rightfully theirs and that they're entitled to. And so the ongoing sort of um, contestation and protests that are happening are in response to this economic dispossession as well as um, ongoing um, terror. Um, Buenaventura is also a place that it, um, certain neighborhoods, one of which we went to for election observation are known for what are for the, um, as the chop houses, right. Which is the places that paramilitaries would bring people and literally chop them up. And so these are areas that have, um, borne the brunt of the, the civil war. Um, and they continue to be, um, economically dispossessed. And so, so their support for and excitement about, um, Petro in Francia, or the Pacto Historico, is precisely to ameliorate some of these conditions. But I will say that they were very clear that getting these people in office, they understand very clearly that this is not magically going to change their conditions. But what it will, what it has allowed is for organized, um, grassroots organizing, and for um, some hope that at least these sort of very intensified and entrenched forms of domination will, will subside, right? But they're Unlike the u s, where we seem to be very politically naive and backward and think that having the quote unquote lesser of of two evils in office is somehow going to change the material conditions they they have the idea they know that that would be just the beginning and not a sort of ending point
0: yeah and and on a similar note, dr. Burton Stelly I mean, uh, because you were talking about the different um, uh, uh, black organizations and, and how, uh, those movements sort of operate in the community and deal with, uh, these different, um, uh, uh, contradictions. And I'm just wondering, you know, what does that organizing look like for them, you know, from what you were able, um, <clears throat> excuse me, able to see in terms of how, you know, they're grappling with all these sorts of things.
5: Yeah. So we met with, so we met with sort of representatives from, from different organizations, um, One, so, so one is called Kikimbe. Um, Kikimbe is an organization that is for um, women who have been previously incarcerated. And it is meant to help them sort of get on their feet after that reality, because not unlike, you know, in the United States, folks who have been, who are coming out of the prison industrial complex, they're subjected to forms of discrimination where they can't find a job, they're ostracized, et cetera. And so that organization um, is meant to help um that that population of um of people. And also as they're doing that, that sort of organizing, they're also um raising political um, consciousness. Another organization that we met with was called the um, trans empoder arte colectiva, which is a collection of queer and trans, black queer and trans folks. And you know, this group expressed that. In the broader sort of black grassroots movements, they would be ostracized because of their, you know, their gender and sexuality. And then in other sort of trans organizations that are predominantly white, obviously that would be marginalized because of race. And so this particular organization um, um came together to challenge the gi- discrimination against um um black, queer people, um, in order to sort of Created a, a space of of healing because Black trans people um are at the they you know they said, quote, the bottom of the bottom and need a lot of healing from um um the trauma that they have. And so this particular organization does this through like cultural work, like um open mics and um, you know, having um other other types of, of um cultural programs that allow them to affirm their humanity. Um, they also talked about. Um, there was another organization, right. That was geared toward, um, self-determination. And so in making collective use of, of, of the territorial land that's collectively owned by black and indigenous folks and the ways that, you know, they're protecting this land against dispossession, but also getting back to, um, you know, learning traditional languages and challenging forcible displacement. And, um, being able to hold on to that land and use it to um to develop autonomous and and self-determined self-determining ways of living and of protection. And so um you know what was really interesting to me and not to center the United States but when I was hearing many of the the issues that were being raised um by young people um by um queer and um, marginalized gendered folks is so much of the um forms of dispossession and discrimination that they were experiencing were an intensified form of of the same types of things that black people experience here in the United States. And so what it demanded is a broader America-wide consciousness, not reducing America to the United States, but rather thinking about this concept of like Nuestras Americas and organizing around black people throughout the Americas, because Right. The hugest population of black people outside of Africa is in Brazil and in South America. And we need to take that seriously. And so for me, um, as an African-American who can be guilty of centering like U.S. black understandings and experiences of, of blackness, it helped me to open my eyes and see that these things are happening like continent wide. Right. They're happening throughout the Americas and that we really need to um um, challenge these different forms of of economic political and 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 gender-based um dispossession collectively yeah
0: definitely we're gonna move to our first break of the hour on that note here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in washington dc we'll be right back so please stay with us by
6: any means necessary
0: Welcome back to by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 521 1320 That's two zero two five two one-1320. One, Myself and Jackie Lucman continue to be joined by Dr. Sharice Burton stelly and Dr. Excuse me. When we left off, you you were talking about the concept of our America and sort of warning against this tendency that we have sometimes in the United States, even amongst you know the revolutionary left, even amongst the anti-imperialists, sometimes of uh, uh, centering the United States or sort of. Uh, Uh, Boiling down the concept of America, as we understand it, to just the United States. And I was hoping you could expound upon that because, you know, I I really I find this concept of our America that that we hear from some of the more uh, progressive and uh, left wing. Uh, governments and leaders and movements in in Latin uh, America. And I'm just wondering how you think that um, those of us in the U.S., you know, who are anti-imperialist and who believe in this concept of a kind of um, collective people-centered thrust for the continent and the hemisphere and the region and how you think that we should be, you know, parsing this uh, as we consider what's happening in Colombia and elsewhere.
5: Well, yeah, I think that it is important, right, to even as we focus on on US imperialism, which is currently the the hegemonic um imperialism, doing it in a way that doesn't, number one, um evade how US imperialism facilitates very localized and particular forms of of violence against marginalized and oppressed communities, like, for example, Afro Colombians. So that is to say that even as we realize how American imperialism operates, everything is not reducible to it. And we have to be very attuned to how, to the particularities of, of domination in these different areas. But the other thing I think is, so in my organization, Black Alliance for Peace, we speak about, um, we, you know, we build on, I think it was um, a 2016 or 2017 um, concept of, of Latin America as a zone of peace and insisting on um, um Latin America as a zone of peace and then spreading that concept um outwardly to um Africa for example and to our own community our own sort of um um internal co- internally colonized communities in the United States means that um you know we are attuned or we we organize for um and agitate for forms of life beyond like warmongering um militarism um, um you know elite domination and and capitalist dispossession which also for me means that we have to center we have to center um black and indigenous folks and working people who bear the brunt of these forms of violence and so um that i think and and that that the the forms of domination to which these these populations are subjected are very much linked even as they have um particular um articulations and so As opposed to understanding ourselves in the United States, for example, Black people in the United States as a minority, when we think across the Americas, we're actually a numerical majority, right? And that consciousness opens up the types of, you know, the types of of issues that we take up and, and also what's possible, Um, We see, for example, the white supremacists and the white nationalists are organizing beyond borders. They, for example, close ranks um, in Ukraine. Um, They're sharing, you know, they're sharing ideas, resources, um, weapons, et cetera. And so I think that um, racialized people across the the Americas and working people across the Americas need to do um, the same thing. And again, it it expands the the cartography of, of struggle, so to speak, and it it gives us um, a broader conception of of how um um imperial domination is operating and also what exactly needs to be done in order to combat it and then Colombia is particularly important because as as um you know Ajamu Baraka has put it um, Colombia is really the the sort of Israel of Latin America and then to to paraphrase Gerald Horn sort of he he's talked about elsewhere that Texas and I would add Florida is to the United States what the United States is to the rest of the world and one might argue that Colombia is to Latin America what the US is to the to the rest of the world that is to say a right wing force um that is where the 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 school of the Americas is located they are I think the only non-european partner of NATO um, um, they have a very close uh, uh Southcom has a very strong presence in Colombia. They're one of the largest receivers of military aid. And so all of that um manifests in the the real oppression and repression of of the Colombian people and especially um black and indigenous people. And so We can connect that to the way that the police operate in the United States, for example, as an occupying force. And we can we can link the sort of militarizing of Colombia to the attack, the attacks on, for example, Venezuela, on Nicaragua, on Cuba and really think. um, And then, you know, there's the whole other wing of this sort of um, summit of the Americas that uh, more and more um, countries are boycotting because it is basically. A way for the US to assert its continue to assert its hegemony over Latin America and the Caribbean. And so anyway, all this idea of Nuestra America helps us to bring all of these things into a single focus and to strategize about how to, to organize against um you know ongoing imperialism, but more than that, to think through like how do we build a world beyond these particular structures, right?
1: Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a fact. And I'm wondering if you have gotten the sense in the conversations with that you've had with people uh, on the ground there that they have, you know, those who are politically engaged, because I never want to give the impression that every single person who does not live in the United States is just more politically aware than every single person who lives in the United States. That's definitely not true. But I do think, that there is a level of political awareness, particularly in regard to imperialism, and where that imperialism is coming from, that is uh, discernibly higher in 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 countries other than the united states so do you do you have you gotten the sense that people in Colombia that you have encountered understand clearly that the fight is against U.S. imperialism and and certainly their allies right there in Colombia. But the fight is against U.S. imperialism. And they're clear about that. And are are they wondering, like, what are we doing?
5: Well, what's interesting is that something that I was paying attention to in terms of the people that we're talking about is that they actually don't use that language. Right. They but, what I will say is that they're very clear about what their material conditions are, and um the ways that they're organizing around improving them. And so, I didn't necessarily hear terms like imperialism and and neocolonialism, um, or you know, socialism. But the way that even younger people are able to to describe their concrete material conditions, they understand the way that like the state and their, um, um, educational institutions and, um, the military are working against their interests. And I do think that there is an understanding of how, um, U S imposition, right. And how, um, U S, um, hegemony is operating, even as they don't use those particular terminologies, but, Organizations did express, you know, a desire to link up with other types of of organizations um, in the United States and just throughout the diaspora who are doing um, this type of work, especially for resources, right? Yeah. Especially for material resources, but also for um, for strategizing um, and for um, you know other other types of like um, you know solidarity. And I think that to me that conveys the U some U.S. organizations, even leftist organizations can, again, be quite U.S. focused and not have a conception or at least an egalitarian conception of leaking, leaking up with other organizations, right? That it's not just we have something to offer them, but that this these forms of organizational solidarity are imperative for um, the work overall. And it seemed to me that um, the organizations that we met with and the people that we talked to had a clear sense of that need for like a transnational um, and trans-territorial um, ter- solidarity.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned a little earlier, Doctor, the uh, uh, Summit of the Americas being put on by uh, the U.S. government, of course, led by uh, Joseph Robinette Biden. Um, and that seems honestly to already be kind of a flop with, uh, you know, different governments expressing Um, uh, uh, concern and disdain for the fact that the U.S. is excluding, you know, Cuba, Venezuela and uh, uh, Nicaragua and things like this. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, uh, in a few days in Los Angeles, there's going to be a people summit sort of uh, in, in response that's bringing together social movements, uh, uh, from all over, both inside and outside the United States, to really discuss uh, some of the more oppressing uh, issues that are facing poor, working, and oppressed people uh, across the globe, which is you know completely different than these uh, uh, imperial uh, meetups that they have from time to time. And of course, I mean some of the Americas is, is right there along, being partly organized by the Organization of American States, which you know Fidel Castro called the the Yankee Ministry of Colonies. And so, you know, I think it's important that we sort of have these kind of uh, 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 people summits, if you will, or really have these alternative events, you know, not, you know, for the sake of being contrarian, but, you know, towards the end of actually uh, uh, building, uh, you know, international movement, strengthening and developing these ties, just like we're talking about with struggling folks across the globe to, you know, strike a blow against the institutions and systems that are oppressing and exploiting us all, you know?
5: Absolutely yes, and so I will be um, at the uh, the People's Summit, and and I think a few days before the People's Summit, there's an anti-imperialist summit that's also happening in um, in Los Angeles, and I do think that these formations are very very important. These sort of grassroots, um, people-centered formations that are meant to challenge um, the OAS, right, Southcom, um, you know, the core group um all of these these entities that are dominated by the United States and that are ultimately um ultimately geared toward um, repressing or erasing any alternative to um US domination and hegemony and and capitalist exploitation and um you know what's really important also about um the people summit is like the the invitation of grassroots organizations not only in the United States but um throughout the Americas to um to strategize with right to to share ideas about uh what needs to be done um and also to represent you know this countervailing force to um you know meetings like um the summit of the Americas that again are are deeply anti-communist and anti-socialist they're deeply imperialist um and you know so the Black Alliance for Peace has called for all uh countries to boycott right um, and to to reject the summit of the Americas um, because they are uh, th- these these types of meetings and, and these types of formations only serve to um, continue uh, exploitation expropriation and, and and domination throughout the Caribbean and the Americas and so it's really important for um, countries in Latin America and in the, in the Caribbean to close ranks and to create alternative um, forms of solidarity and alternative structures. So at the state level, even as we're having these sort of these other types of meetings like the, the People Summit at the sort of organizational and individual level, because once these two sort of levels uh, link up, then I, I really think that that presents a powerful, powerful uh, counterweight to to U.S. domination and the conscription of like CARICOM and, and other formations into, um you know, um, um propping up like U.S. domination and, and Western domination.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a fact, and that can only serve to. Even though you know, look, internationalism is is not. It it shouldn't be transactional. It should not be. You know, I am I am going to support you because I'm going to get something from you. But I think that kind of internationalism, or the result of that internationalism, uh, that we could gain in this country certainly could benefit in not just combating uh, the imperialist forces uh, internationally that are are plaguing, you know, our brothers and sisters around the world, but, I mean, look at the mess that we face in this country just this week. I mean, there's another shooting at a hospital this time. I mean, so clearly, I-, I think there are, a lot can be said, and I hope that you will say more, about how this kind of internationalism would benefit us, and and that we not do it because we will get a benefit from it, but because we are all achieving, trying to achieve a better outcome for all humanity, Dr. and the only way we can do it is through this internationalism.
5: Yeah, and I think that it's an—so what I would say that the People's Summit represents is an internationalism that's rooted on—rooted in sort of localized— a localized focus. So some in some scholarship they call it like glocalization or or you know a, a global outlook. And because I think that the point of engaging internationally um is is again it's it's solidarity, it's it's networks, it is um, you know increasing the or or sort of expanding the ways that we can struggle to improve local conditions in the service of um a, you know broader challenges to these these global issues and i also think that like an international um consciousness allows us to have more clarity around the failures of of any sort of democratic possibility we attribute to the us government so you know to say that differently you know the biden administration despite you know people's imploring that we can push him left and, and there's more possibility it has been as repressive if not more so um as the the Trump regime right and so i think that understanding that we have like one part one party with two factions and that each is deeply invested in imperialism and warmongering and seeing how that manifests globally like throughout the americas but also globally gives us a more sober analysis of how those forms of 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 Colonization and imperialism redound back to the United States through, like, the 1033 program, through the militarization of the police, through the increased, you know, or continued warehousing of, of radical populations in, in prisons, through the, you know, the spending of money on weapons for Ukraine, for example, and not, you know, the inability to pass the Toast bill back, basic bill. Like, all of those things matter, right? Um, you know it also sheds light on how when we fund and promote militarism abroad we encourage domestic terrorism um manifested in the this sort of spate of mass shootings that have happened in the past um 3 or 4 weeks and what's really sort of sad about um that t- the the um killing in Tulsa was that it was literally on the anniversary um, the 101st anniversary of the the Tulsa race massacre. And so it seems to me that as long as we promote a particular type of, of militarism and death dealing abroad, that those same types of values will continue to animate domestic terrorism here and will continue to um, animate the complete disinvestment in the overall population of the United States in the interest of, private corporations, and of uh, particularly um, weapons manufacturers. And so, again, I think having an international consciousness um, helps us to see that the U.S. government is not the solution. And so we might understand politics beyond electoralism, right? We might um, come up with forms of of organizing um, and people-centered human rights that are not predicated on this you know, this massive mobilization every four years to elect the lesser of two evils. And so to me, that's that's the sort of importance of um international consciousness and linking the the many, many, many <laughs> catastrophic occurrences that are happening simultaneously in the United States with the sort of broader ways that the u s. is destabilizing so many other um, countries abroad.
0: Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
6: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington DC. I'm your host Sean Blackman here with Jackie Lukman and as always we are your guide for connecting the political, social and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open 202-521-1320 that's 2 025211320. I am here. Jackie Lukemon is here. Doctor Cherise burden is here, and we have a caller on the line. Keith, tell us what's on your mind.
7: Well, I'm, as usual, another great show on any means necessary, and on this day, particularly, um, in, uh, how could I say, enlightening uh, guest. And I just wanted to mention I had a friend who uh, once worked, you know, for the State Department, and she was she's African American, and she went to uh, Colombia and went from coast to coast, and was floored at how many afro uh, Colombians there were. So, as most Americans, we are not aware of this. And I wanted to say second, the analogy between Israel being the outpost of America in the Middle East, if it were located in the middle of um, Australia, it would have no support from the U.S. So it's a geostrategic reason. So the same applies to what we're seeing in Colombia, the military bases, all the training in Florida, back and forth. And my final question, my question is, Jovenel Moise was uh, overthrown in a coup and their suspicions and allegations that it was it were they were the Colombians. And so, are they carrying out paramilitary things for the U.S. as well? And would this be an example of it in what they did to, um, you know, overthrow the last uh, president in in Haiti? Uh, so, can you uh, kind of uh, parse that out and, and um, unpack it for me? Thank you. Well, thank you,
0: Keith. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon, uh, Dr. Burton Stelly. Your thoughts?
5: Yeah, I think it's absolutely instrumental that the you know the mercenaries who um, are suspected of of um, assassinating the the sitting president, the then sitting president um, in Haiti were Colombia or were were Colombian. And again, it, this is important because of the connection that the the massive amount of um weapons the u s. pours into Colombia, the amount of aid it provides, the role of Southcom. Um, the role of the School of the Americas, all of those things, um, matter very much, right? And the fact that Colombia is like the U.S.'s most strategic partner um, in Latin America and the Caribbean, um, is is extremely important. And so I think that though though that connection that um the caller may is spot on, and of course, um, people like Ah uh, Jamila Pierre have written about this in um the Black Agenda Report and elsewhere. Um, you know, Jamila has written extensively about um not only the most um the the current occupation of Haiti but going back to you know the overthrow of of Aristide and and how that that has impacted what has happened subsequently and so um anyway but i think that the fact that those mercenaries were colombian is is specifically and really attest to the strong military um connection between the united states and and um colombia
0: Definitely, we got another caller on the line here, Craig. Tell us what's on your mind. Hey, Sean,
6: uh, thanks for taking my call, and I was implored by the Bam Chat, which is the the, the best chat in in the business. And uh, <laughs> I want to say two things. One, we're very uh, all very sorry about uh, Brewski and and condolences to Jackie. Shout out to you, Sean, as a, a FAMU. Uh, uh, Dad and Dr. Burton Steely, uh, congratulations on your uh, promotion or appointment to Wright State University. We're very excited about, uh, looking forward to what you're going to produce there. I have a question about um, you're you're finding that there's there's a, a degree of uh, awareness. In Colombia and elsewhere that doesn 't exist here, and I was wondering specifically about the role of cultural imperialism and and the reason that i 'm asking that is that my own research is about the role of political narratives and media narratives in in the accommodation of housing affordability in the United States. but the research is clear the literature is clear that um, these uh, um, Displacements uh, that you described, the uh, disp- uh, dispossession, displacement is is a universal, it's a global phenomenon. So, so I'm, I'm just curious about what what you see as some of the, the reasons that uh, that there may be more awareness or heightened awareness that, that that might inform some of the ways that we might struggle here. So, I'll take your question offline, or your answer offline.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Craig. Appreciate you calling in. I got to say, though, I am from FAMU. I'm not a FAMU dad. No, uh, he is. Oh, he is. Yeah. Oh! oh. Which, is, which is
1: the one thing that saved me from going, oh, man, don't big up FAMU again. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay, right. okay, cool. Well, that
0: that changes everything. <laughs> Shout out to all the FAMU dads. I have a FAMU dad. Shout out to him. He's great. Uh, Dr. Burton Stelly, your response.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that what is... I guess the way that I would answer that question is just that I think that the U.S. population is the most propagandized population on the planet. And so there's a way that even as we suffer materially, there's this belief in the possibility of of class ascendance. Now, granted, I think that there's more and more sort of consciousness about the sort of paucity and impossibility of the so-called American dream. But I think that because we are so propagandized and because the left is so repressed in this country and there's not um, a strong um, alternative to the mainstream media, of course, there are maybe smaller platforms, not least um, by any means necessary. But because of that, I think there's a consciousness that we um, that we don't have like I think that many people believe continue to believe the narratives of you know U.S. interventions abroad with respect to democracy and human rights and women's rights and all that uh, when we know very well when we if we just take a look around our own population it's like how is it that the United States would care about those things abroad when they do not protect or value those things domestically and so I think that part of the uh, what separates or what what I guess makes the United States very low in political education is the ubiquity of the propaganda in entertainment, in the mainstream media, which is, you know, the intellectual arm of of the ruling class um in colleges and universities. it's 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 sort of like totalizing, right? And any and this sort of left wing alternatives are are discredited, are demonized, are, you know, called, you know, for example, bots or whatever on social media. And so to me, it's the ubiquity of the propaganda machine in the US that really impacts the lack of, of um consciousness, especially around political economy, that other um that that sort of right ordinary people in other countries have, not least because of their subjection, right, to um to imperialism and and their real understanding of that. I, I don't think that the majority of the population here necessarily has, um, that understanding, right. Especially any, um, as it relates to analysis of white class, um, um, and imperialism.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and what Craig said at at the top about, you know, cultural imperialism, I, I, I'm of two minds about, about that, that phrase and what it means, because on the one hand, I see that, that it, I know what they're trying to say—that that you know uh, that that imperialism is is, is imposed through, uh, you know, through various kinds of culture, right? Through entertainment and and media and all that kind of stuff. And that certainly goes on, but but at the same time, it's like, but that's just isn't that just imperialism? Isn't that pretty much just what imperialism does? Like when I'm thinking about. Dr. Burden Stelly, the fact that in in the UK, they are celebrating the Queen of England being on the throne for 70 years. And I swear, I I, I mean, that's 70 years of imperialism. That is 70 years of the destruction of culture and community and peoples and and so how do you separate the two? And and I'm wondering, do you see like the the displacement of indigenous people and the the attempt to theft their to to steal their land in Colombia as was done here in the United States? Do you see it as the, the the term cultural imperialism as something that is separate from imperialism, or as kind of a, a, an attempt to take a bite out of what imperialism? really does, really is, and the totality of it in destroying
5: pretty much the existence of a people. I mean, I guess I feel about cultural imperialism, how I feel about like as a term, how I feel about the term racial capitalism, because, you know, the term racial capitalism doesn't mean that any aspect of capitalism is not racialized but it's to specify what one is talking about. And so I think the term cultural imperialism, for example, what I think about is the way how um, the denigration of, of indigenous life ways, religions, and cultural practices operate along, and the erasure of those, right? And the attack of people who practice those alongside um dispossession, right? Because the other side of taking away people's land is to erase their culture because all, often cultural practices are very much rooted in place. And so I do, th- and then what, the other thing I think about within co- with cultural imperialism is like, when I was in Colombia, I also felt very at home because number one, like US goods and products are everywhere, right? That's a particular manifestation of cultural imperialism because the things that are produced locally are era- destroyed and replaced by like international corporations, right? Which then impacts tastes, values, um, ideas of development and modernity, et cetera. And so I do, th- I think I take your point whereby we don't, we need to understand the multi, the multifaceted ways that um, imperialism operates and not, nece- you know, not necessarily you like only focus on cultural imperialism to the detriment of the the other ways that it operates. But at the same time, I do think sometimes naming the specificity can be um, helpful um, especially for those who only understand imperialism in like economic terms, um, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I definitely see what you're saying. I definitely see what you're saying. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was just sort of thinking, well, a couple of things. I mean, uh, number one, and sort of an aside, you know, I just want to uh, generally shout out, shout out the, uh, by any means, necessary chat. Uh, you know, it's pretty dope. You know, we've had folks from the chat calling in to the show and, you know, these are people that are with us every single day. I mean, really, it's funny because, you know, there's like a community that's been developed uh, around the show that really emerges from the chat that really happened kind of by accident. I mean, it started on our YouTube channel, uh, which was always, I mean, it was just kind of thrown together, kind of an afterthought, but our chat really made it like a, a thing. And so I just want to say that uh, I appreciate you all for that. And swinging back to the point, excuse me. <laughs> around Colombia <laughs> wow <laughs> um the point around uh Colombia and US imperialism in Latin America and in general and what it means for those of us uh uh in the United States I mean when we uh take a step back and sort of situate what we see happening in Colombia, in Latin America, indeed, in Russia and Ukraine and things like this, I think we have to remember uh, sort of the interconnected nature and how, you know, the way that U.S. imperialism is operating in one region is directly connected to how it's uh, uh, operating in the other. And I actually just thought about this, but it's like when uh, after the U.S. Uh, banned Russian oil or whatever, and then they went, you know, uh, you know, a uh, hat in hand to the Venezuelan government of Maduro and things like that, you know, the very same government that they've been uh, trying to coup out of existence and replace them with this uh, fake fraud and a failure, Wang Guaido. I mean, you know, we just see that the the links here are uh, uh, pretty clear and pretty strong. And see, this is why there has to be this kind of collective internationalist uh, uh, response to imperialism and neocolonialism in all its uh, uh, manifestations, because, you know, when you, you can't strike one of those pins, if you will, without the rest sort of uh, uh, feeling the vibration. So it's sort of like the whole system itself has to be both resisted and overturned and replaced. As a uh, a collective effort, if the suffering of the world's poor, working and oppressed people is ever actually going to be ended or critically addressed. And, you know, we see how the capitalist class is operating in this moment, having their own meetings, their own organizations, their own uh, policies and partnerships and things like that, all out of an attempt to really stop uh, 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 a kind of solidarity from developing and to try to stop a, a multipolar world from coming about. And as of now, it's not going so well. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and watch D.C. We want to thank Dr. Cherise Bergen-Stelli so much for joining us today. We'll be back from all of all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.
6: By Any Means Necessary.